From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. Grace can be triggering to a lot of people because it's been weaponized. It's been something that's been used against people who are being harmed and abused in the Christian world, who are told, you just need to have more grace for people. But the spiritual bypassing, right? Taking these spiritual ideas so that nobody has to actually deal with their own issues or systemic issues in society. So I think for some people who have said to me, well, what do I do with that? It's a triggering word. I say reclaim the word because that's never what it meant. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Kirsten Powers. She's a USA Today columnist and a senior political analyst for CNN, where she appears regularly on Anderson Cooper 360, CNN Tonight with Don Lemon, and The Lead with Jake Tapper. Her writing has been published in The Wall Street Journal, The Dallas Morning News, The New York Observer, Salon, The Daily Beast, and other publications. Kirsten Powers, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. So this is one of those rare books, and I, I because I read a lot of books, I happen upon them every once in a while where I get started reading it, and I'm like, oh, this is going to be a simple book. It's going to be very straightforward. And then I realize uh, a few chapters in that it's a book that I'm going to need to go back and read more deeply and read more carefully, particularly one of your chapters called Through a Glass Darkly, which we'll get to in this conversation. So I just want to, first of all, applaud you for the real careful balance between this being a book that is incredibly accessible. My my listeners of any stripe will be able to pick it up, but there are treasures in every chapter that cause you to go deeper, more reflective. So I'm just very grateful, first of all, for the way that you have structured this book. That means so much to me, really. I'm just going to, I need that. As soon as this comes out, I'm just going to listen to that over and over again, because really that's the highest praise. I wanted it to be something that was rigorous, but accessible. Right. So actually, a lot of people have really enjoyed reading it. A lot of people have told me they read it in one sitting, people who normally don't do that. And yet I've also been told even by people who are like a New Testament scholar saying that this is absolutely rigorous in terms of theology. And I just didn't expect to hear that. Right. So I also want it to be accessible to people of all faiths, no faith. And I've also found that's been very uh, rewarding for me to hear from somebody who is a devout Christian to a person who's an atheist to a person who is a member of another faith saying, this really resonates with me. So that just really means a lot to me. As a way of orienting our listeners to where we're going in this conversation, I want to start in kind of an odd place. And that is in your kitchen, a few years back, there's a handyman in your kitchen fixing, I believe, your garbage disposal in your sink. Yes. You both are having a So you con- go right to the most shameful behavior. <laughs> well, that way we can build up from there and show how the book can help people who have been in similar situations. But if you would, for my listeners, just describe briefly what that situation was and uh, what the disconnect was and what you learned from it. 
Well, so this was towards the end of 2018. So it'd been a couple years of the Trump era. And I think a lot of us were on edge. And I just don't think I realized how on edge I was and exactly what it was doing to me. I knew I was miserable. I knew that I felt horrible. I had chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia and anxiety and all these things. But this moment was a real turning point for me because I did something that I would normally not do. And so this person is somebody who I used to go to church with at another church, and he's been my handyman for almost a decade. He's he's actually a publicist in his day job, but he's just really good at fixing things. And so I hired him a long time ago to help me with things. And so he would spend a lot of time in my house, obviously. And so we would talk and he's a Republican and we would talk about politics and we would disagree, but the conversations were very reasonable. I always found him really interesting and informative. And so I guess I had just put him in that basket of people, which are most of the Republicans that I know in D.C., including evangelicals. He's an evangelical who didn't vote for Trump. And I just assumed that. And we were talking and as we normally did, we were talking about politics. And I think I said something about Trump or something. It had something to do with immigration. And he started talking back to me and I was listening. I was like, wait, (laughs) I was like, he sounds like something. And I was like, oh, he sounds like the people I go on TV with who support Trump. And so then I I was like, did you vote for Trump? And he said, yeah, I did. And I honestly, just like the blood just rushed to my head. And I just was like, I can't believe this. And I said, you know what? I need you to leave. And I I was shaking, really. I went upstairs and I just was sitting on my bed and I was like, and then I just was saying to myself, what are you doing? What is happening? I don't, like, I've never said something like that to anybody, let alone a person who I've had this relationship with, you know, really been very helpful to me and who I think is a very kind person and all these other things. And so I went back downstairs and one thing actually, which which isn't in the book is as I was sitting on my bed, I said to myself, I'm not going to let Donald Trump ruin my relationships. And I went back downstairs and I said, I'm sorry, can you please forgive me? Oh, and I forgot I yelled at him down the stairs. I thought you were a Christian. And he said, I am and I can explain it. And so when I came downstairs, I said, I'm sorry, can you forgive me? And he said, yes. And I said, "Okay." And he said, let's talk about it. And I said, no, let's never talk about it again. And at that point, and I come back to this later in the book, at that point, that was the best I could do. And if today that it happened, same exact thing, because I'm so much more grounded and because I've gone through this whole process that I talk about in the book of really learning how to practice grace, I could have that conversation, right? I would have been able to have that conversation. But at that point, I was running on fumes. I was barely hanging on just from all the things that I was dealing with at work and not knowing how to process that and not knowing how to not take on every other person's feelings and beliefs and all these other things. 
If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Kirsten Powers. She's a USA Today columnist and a senior political analyst for CNN, where she appears regularly on, on, on numerous programs. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Saving Grace, Speak Your Truth, Stay Centered, and Learn to Coexist with People Who Drive You Nuts. Well, part of the reason why I wanted to start with that story is that's an example of a time when you definitely spoke your truth. But I, <laughs> if I may characterize in my, my reading of that situation, you did not stay centered and you were trying to navigate learning to coexist with this person who had created this dissonance for you. I thought that you were a Christian. How could you vote for this person? So it's safe to say for the listeners who are not familiar with your book or with your work, that this was maybe a starting point for you, a kind of flag planted in the sand of, okay, I need to do better next time. So so help us to understand how from that kind of moment where you had this radical disconnect, where you were feeling suddenly the trauma and the dislocation of this, where that took you next in terms of kind of thinking about these questions of grace, forgiveness, and centeredness? Well, so some other things had happened before that. The, you know, it happened slowly than all at once, right? It, there were things that were happening along the way that would register a little bit and I would notice it, but it wasn't necessarily the turning point for me. And the things that were happening, I think that or getting me to the point of recognizing that something was going wrong was actually really out of necessity because like I said, I was physically unwell. I was quite sick um, with, I'd been told I had uh, chronic Lyme disease and Epstein-Barr, these kind of mystery illnesses and fibromyalgia and I had clinical anxiety. And so part of it was also realizing this is unsustainable. I can't go on this way. And I was having a, a faith crisis, which I talk about a little bit in the book. So everything was pretty much everything was going wrong. And so I, in the first turning point for me actually was when I discovered somebody named Richard Rohr. I don't know if your listeners are familiar with him or not. And one of the things that he focuses on a lot is how dualistic our culture is and how particularly Western Christianity, but also the United States is very dualistic. It, look at our political system, right? It's very binary. Either you're a Democrat or you're a Republican. And it was the first time that I started to think, maybe I'm not seeing things clearly. I am a very binary person and I exist in, an extreme, in a world that amps that up, right? And I became aware through Roar because he is somebody who teaches about the Enneagram and I had started to learn about the Enneagram and it's basically posits that we create our personalities in response to trauma. And I started to realize that I had a hyper binary view of the world as a way to keep myself safe. So I was starting to unpack, okay, I need to start thinking about things differently. I think that that, that sort of opened the, like the door a little bit for grace to sneak in, right? To make me open to that idea. And then I just was miserable, miserable, miserable. This happened. And I was fine. I finally got to this point where I had to sit back and look at myself. And, and this truly was, I think, the turning point was when I had to admit to myself that my thoughts in my head and often my behavior, particularly on social media, were not aligned with what I said I believed. And how could I sit there and say, I believe in loving your enemies and loving your neighbor when I wasn't even trying to do that? It was 
And in fact, I thought the idea was preposterous. So I realized that I needed to get into alignment. And so when I did that, that was really the turning point of saying, I need to take a really hard look at my own behavior and I need to start figuring out how do I get from here where I am to there, which is a place where I'm in alignment. And that's when I had this intuition about grace, but I didn't really know what that would look like. And that's what this book is. It's me figuring out how do you get from point A to point B? Because it's not magic. It's not like you just say, oh, I'm just going to practice grace. It doesn't work that way. I tried that. And so I had to figure out what is impeding my ability to be aligned. It strikes me as I'm listening to your answer, you start one of your chapters with a quote from Anna East Nin, and I believe the quote is, we don't see the world as it is, we see the world as we are. And so what I'm hearing in what you're saying is you really had a moment where you're like, I am seeing the world in binary ways, and I'm projecting that out onto the world, black and white, good and bad, evil people, good people. So as I'm hearing that quotation resonate through your answer. Am I following what you're saying? Yes. Or, okay. Can you say a little bit more absolutely. about that? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And that other people are doing the same thing with me. Right. And so when you practice grace, you can see that you can see that when somebody is saying something to you, that it's almost always more about them than it is about you. And you don't need to take that on. And that my trauma was making it impossible for me to have grace for people because it was too scary because the way that I made myself feel safe was to sort people into good and evil baskets. And, and so I think particularly around certain issues that were triggering to me when it comes to the issues that I think I'm the most animated about equality and justice and those kinds of things. And so I wasn't able to see people, as I say, if you're practicing grace, you will see people as doing the best they can with what they have. If somebody had said that to me, <laughs> I would have been like, you're crazy. What are you even talking about? I was, I was just so judgmental and so self-righteous and couldn't see it. And that's the thing when I look back is I realized how unconscious I was that I just... I couldn't see it if someone had said to me, well, and people did say to me, because then I got a therapist who was trauma informed and she did say to me, you're really judgmental. And well, why don't we learn some non-judgment? And because I went in and I said, I want to figure out how to practice grace. Well, let's start with non-judgment. And it was almost comical. You know, she would say, I would say something and she'd say, why don't you try saying that in a way that isn't judgmental? And then I would say it again. And she'd be like, no, still judgmental don't label people, don't, don't judge people, just say what they're doing. Like, don't talk about how the thing they did is who they are, right? And so I think I thought I was just righteous. And sometimes I was, and sometimes I was self-righteous. And so it was a pretty hard process. I have to say it was the hardest thing I've ever done. And when people ask, what was it like to write the book? Most writers will tell you that writing's awful. It's just a terrible experience. And I'll, this was terrible, but in a completely different way than what most writers mean when they say that. Because I was having to delve so deep into where I had gone wrong. And, you know, I have a whole chapter on how important it is to develop humility. And, and part of that process was me having to go back and really sit with some behavior that I'm not proud of. And then that makes it a lot easier for me when I see somebody else doing something to say, oh, yeah, I know what it's like to say something that you shouldn't say. I know what it's like to believe something that's 
problematic and not realize that it's problematic. But in, until I had actually taken the time to do that, it, our memories play, play tricks on us. You know, we think that we were always on the right side of things or that when people say, I would never do such and such. And I know people who do that. And I'm thinking, what do you mean you would never do that? You did do that. <laughs> you know? and it's like, And even if you didn't do that, you did something else. Right. So, yeah, it it was very hard, but so worthwhile. Gosh, life changing. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Kirsten Powers. She's a USA Today columnist and senior political analyst for CNN, where she appears regularly on numerous programs. We're talking today about her recent book, Saving Grace. Speak your truth, stay centered and learn to coexist with people who drive you nuts. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of conversations and interviews, all available for free for your listening pleasure. Today, we're speaking with Kirsten Powers. She's a USA Today columnist and a senior political analyst for CNN, where she appears regularly on numerous programs. Her writing has been published in The Wall Street Journal, The Dallas Morning News, The New York Observer, Salon, and other publications. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Saving grace, speak your truth, stay centered, and learn to coexist with people who drive you nuts. In the last segment, you were talking about a kind of battle with uh, judgmental nature. And the core idea of your book is grace, and that's a faith word. But one of the things that you point out is that you were part of some faith communities during your journey that really aided and abetted this judgmentalism. It really was a a situation where it almost gave you language and excuse to be the kind of judgmental binary thinker that you've now tried to to move away from. Could you talk to us a little bit about that part of your journey and what you learned by unlearning that? Yeah, it was really a combustible mix. So taking my trauma and mixing it in with, I started attending an evangelical church in New York City right after a series of deaths in my family where I was highly traumatized and it, and it triggered some childhood trauma. So it was this cumulative trauma burden. And then I ended up starting to attend this church with a boyfriend and became very serious about my faith, but also, yeah, felt like I had this language that gave me license to believe that I was right about everything. And I'm not saying that's what they were teaching me. (laughs) So I, I don't think every person who encounters what I encountered walks away behaving that way, though, unfortunately, a lot of people do. So that's why I think it is important to understand that everybody has their own trauma that they're contending with. And until they integrate it, they will often be drawn to environments like that because it gives them a sense of safety, a sense of certainty. And then they start acting that out on other people. I know other people who went to the same church I went to and that didn't happen at all, right? So I think that unlearning 
that sort of worldview, which is basically the Bible's like this oracle and you can just go to it and you can find out what's right and what's wrong based on this interpretation of theology and moving out of that into a space, which really Richard Rohr helped me with and Father James Martin, who became my spiritual director, helped move me out of that and more into a space of embracing mystery. Something that would have been unthinkable in a previous time. And I was able to get there in large part, I think, because I did a lot of work on dealing with my trauma and I integrated that trauma and that started to create more space for uncertainty and space for not knowing things that were very scary to me. And so I think that one thing I would like to say, though, that I think happens a lot, and this did happen to me, you know, when people are deconstructing out of faith, Often they take, and I did this, they take the same thinking that was so toxic in the faith community, and then they turn it on the faith community that they left. And so, and now they're all bad and they're all horrible and they're all right. And so I I did that for a little while. And I think then I, uh, one of my friends said to me recently, I think I referred to that I was deconstructing. And he said, no, I don't think you're deconstructing. I think you're reconstructing. And so I was like, oh, you're right, because I now what Richard War talks about is when you have transcended something, you transcend and you include. You don't look down on what you have left. You look at it and you take what was good from it and you leave what was not good behind. But if you're looking down on those people or demonizing those people, then you're still caught in it. Like you're still caught in that same kind of thinking. And so I think it was through writing this book when I was able to have grace, not just for them, but honestly for myself, because I was so hard on myself. Well, how could that have happened? How could I have gotten involved in that? How could I have said these things? I just, I was so filled with shame. And my therapist said to me, and my friends were saying to me, where's grace for Kirsten? And I was like, I know, I just can't do it. I can't do it. And then I remember my therapist said to me, that Kirsten was doing the best she could with what she had. And you believe that about other people now, but you don't believe that about yourself. And you're judging her based on who you are now today. And that was really clarifying to me. And I think that's when I was able to start having grace for myself. And and if you can't have grace for yourself, then you're not going to have grace for other people, really. And so that really helped me and clarified for me that as much as it, when you can look at another person and say, how could that possibly be the best that they could do? I know from experience that sometimes the best isn't that great. And it's the Maya Angelou quote. She says, you did the best you could, you know, with the tools you had. And when you knew better, you did better. So before we move on, I want to acknowledge that you mentioned in that answer that you had experienced some profound loss, some deaths. And I just want to say, first of all, my deepest sympathies and condolences to you for those Thank losses. You. And, and, and then in the midst of that answer, it brings up something that you say in passing towards the end of your book, Saving Grace. You say it would be really interesting to sit and listen to a debate <laughs> between 2015 Kirsten Powers and 2021 Kirsten Powers. I wonder if you'd be willing to expand a little bit on that kind of phrase and, and explain what you meant by that. Yeah, I think we would disagree on a lot. I really think that I, because I, I see some people who are in the media right now who think and act the way that I used to think and act. And I just think, I get it. I totally get it, right? But I see it so differently. I'm not judging them. I'm really, I really, I just think I, I, I see it so differently. And what I think is, was missing 
for me was compassion and empathy. And I wasn't really able, I don't know if I wasn't able, I just didn't really put myself in other people's shoes, right? And I didn't have grace for other people. I didn't have grace. One of the things I say is grace is creating space for people to not be you. And I did not create that space for people. I basically, if you didn't think the way I thought about things now, maybe around the margins, you could think some things that were different, but on certain issues, if you didn't think the way I thought about them, then I just wrote you off or I just was like, well, you're just wrong. And I need to tell you why you're wrong. Right. And so one of the things, what happened in 2015 was I published my first book, which was about free speech and how the left was silencing people, even though I'm left of center, but I was looking at a lot of things that were happening on campuses and and these kinds of things. And it's not that I disagree with everything that I said. It's that that I had sacralized free speech and made it more important than the feelings and experiences of other people. And frankly, other people who are different than I am and have a different perspective. And so for me to sit there and tell them how they should feel, you know, take a gay person and I'd be like, well, I support gay rights so I can say this, right? But no, it's I didn't stop and say, my argument was basically, well, if you don't like it when a homophobic person comes on campus to speech, gives a speech, you should just go argue with them. Same thing if someone comes on campus and they're saying that sexual assault statistics are untrue, you should just go and argue with them. I could do that. I was sexually assaulted. So why can't you do it? Instead of saying, maybe people don't want to go and argue for their humanity. And maybe people have dealt with their trauma in a different way than you have. I dealt with my trauma by disconnecting from myself. And so that's why I was able to go and have arguments with people about things because I was dissociated. And so I was completely, I didn't, even when I started therapy and my, my therapist always say, what are you feeling? It's nothing. I don't feel anything. Everything is in my head. Everything's intellectual. So I intellectualized everything. Whereas now I'm much more grounded. I'm much more connected to myself and my feelings. And it's, I, and again, I don't have this need to put people in their baskets. I don't, I think I had all sorts of trauma around being shut down and not allowed to say what I wanted to say growing up. So of course I latched onto free speech, right? You don't see why you're doing the things that you're doing that I don't have now. I don't feel like I'm not in fear that I can't say what I need to say or that somebody's going to silence me. So so yeah, I think it would be a very interesting debate. I don't think that Kirsten would like this Kirsten very much. <laughs> if you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Kirsten Powers. She's a USA Today columnist and senior political analyst for CNN. She appears regularly on their programs, and she's been published in numerous publications. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Saving Grace, Speak Your Truth, Stay Centered, and Learn to Coexist with People Who Drive You Nuts. Something that has come up several times in our conversation so far is this concept of trauma. And you take time to talk about what you mean by that term in the book. But for my listeners, I want to make sure that they're tracking as well. So what do you mean and what do you not mean when you're indicating this word trauma? Well, trauma, yeah, I think it's one of these things, and I certainly used to think this, that trauma is something spectacular, right? It's like Hollywood, horrific kind of level of experience when trauma is actually not event 
specific, it's person specific. So it's not that this happens and therefore it's trauma. It's how a person experiences something. For one person, it will be very traumatic. For another person, it won't, right? So it could be something that happened to you, you know, in junior high with some boy who you really liked and he humiliated you. That could be a traumatic experience that you are carrying with you and that completely shapes your identity. I, I know people that this has happened to or you were bullied in high school and it's still to this day, you're in your 50s and you are still shaped by that experience. And then it can be other things much bigger. It could be that you were sexually assaulted or things like that. For me, it was my parents' divorce, I think was it was a real trauma for me because I was five years old and some other things that happened in my family. And then I had this series of half my family dying basically in my mid thirties, right? So I, and I just didn't have, the, I did not have the tools to deal with that. And so I think if you don't like the word trauma, because some people are put off by that, you could just think of it as what's a wounding that I haven't dealt with, that I haven't integrated. That I And an integration just means that I haven't processed it and been seen in that pain because that's really what we need. And, and I think a lot of the ways, what's interesting about with these deaths, I think the reason it wasn't integrated is because I lived in New York City. My family lived in Alaska where I'm from. So basically you go home for the funeral and then you go back to New York City. You don't know anybody who knows the family member who's died. It's not that sort of communal mourning that's supposed to happen where you are seen in it and you have other people who are carrying that with you. And I just was back and people were like, oh, sorry about that. You want to go to the movies? Nothing against them. It's just they didn't know my dad. They didn't know my stepfather. Did They didn't know my grandmother. So I wasn't really seen in it until I went to this place called Onsite and it's, it's called the Living Centered Program. And I processed that there with a group, basically a group of people. And when I left there about three weeks later, all of my chronic fatigue was gone. My anxiety, my, you know, fibromyalgia, all just completely gone and it's never come back. And I just started to feel less scared and less like I had to protect myself and started to have, I think, more of a capacity to grow through the other work that I was doing. As I hear you giving your answer, I'm, I'm going to say, in my words, the body holds on to trauma and that affects things like your mind and your health. I'm also aware that you mentioned earlier in the conversation, you've been working with Father James Martin as a spiritual director. He comes from the Jesuit tradition. The little that I know of the Jesuit tradition, one of the things that's very central to that is asking you to do this work of getting in touch with your feelings, not necessarily in any kind of uh, touchy-feely way, but instead because the Jesuit tradition acknowledges that your feelings will lead you astray in your decision-making and will, will, will bind you up and keep you spiritually held back in certain ways. Now, these are all my words, not yours, but I'm wondering if you're comfortable talking about it, how some of your work with spiritual direction has aided with this recovery from trauma and with this kind of reattachment to your feelings and your boundaries. Well, I think when I first encountered Father Martin, I was a mess, just an absolute mess. And I was so anxious. I, I, I just was just a bundle of anxiety. And a lot of that anxiety was coming from the fact that I was still really locked into that binary thinking. 
And yet I knew that I didn't identify with the evangelical theology. And, and if I'm being totally honest, I never totally did, but I just felt, well, they're the experts and I gave my power away and I had converted to Catholicism, which is my half of my family was Catholic growing up. And so it was always in the background. And so I'd converted to Catholicism, but I was still, I was basically, I just brought evangelical theology to Catholicism and just started, oh, well, what are all the rules and how do I do this? And I'm going to go to confession every day. And I'm going to just, just was more anxiety for me while at the same time thinking, well, when I read the Bible, this isn't what I see. I don't, this isn't resonating with me, but I had so much fear. And I, as I tell this, and I say this in the book, when I'm saying this out loud, I'm like, what am I even talking about? None of this makes sense to me now, right? But at the time, that's where I was. Oh, I was, I just met Robert, who's my fiance, and felt like he was the one. And But we both were divorced and we didn't have annulments. And so I was being told by a couple priests, you have to break up with him. And so I had all this anxiety around that. And so I think when I first went in to see Father Martin, he just really centered me. And he's just said, Kirsten, when you have experienced the presence of God, how does it feel? And I said, well, it feels peaceful and calming. And then he said, well, then maybe all this isn't from God. And I was like, oh. <laughs> so, and I just was able to kind of exhale and just say, okay, you're right. You're right. I know that. And then he started as we would talk with each other, you know, to unpack this kind of binary thinking and to lead me more into the idea of mystery, which is actually very central to Catholicism. And so the more I embraced that, I think, in conjunction with dealing with my trauma, which gave me an even greater capacity to embrace that, the more grounded I became. And I was also integrating you know, meditation and centering prayer and these other things. And the other thing is he would always ask me and he always asks me, how have you experienced God? Right. And to actually really stop and think about that. And yeah, so it just helped me shift and reground me when I would start going back into this way of thinking, which I thankfully am pretty much out of. It's not to say that it never happens, but what I say now is that the difference is when I used to have contempt for people and judge people and all of these things, I just thought it was normal. I, right. I didn't think anything. I was just like, yeah, I'm judging them. Of course I'm judging them. I wouldn't, who wouldn't judge them? Whereas now, if it happens, I notice it. And I go, something's off. I'm all, I need some sleep. I need to exercise. I need to meditate. I need to sit with myself. I need to think, pr practice grace, right? And, and it's discordant. Whereas before I was just, I just didn't, like, it was like breathing. And that's one thing that always comes up when I talk about this with people. They'll say, well, grace is just weak. It's just giving in and letting people do what they want, which is not what grace is. And I go into the book about what grace is. But Grace is actually hard <laughs> and looking at other people and giving them unmerited favor, which is the paradigm that I use, which is doesn't matter who you are or what you did, you deserve to be treated with humanity, including people I don't like. That is hard. Demonizing and dominating people is the easiest thing in the world. It is like breathing, right? It comes so naturally and so easy. And yet, isn't it interesting that in our culture, so many people think that's a sign of strength? Whereas what really takes strength is to take a step back and 
take a breath and have some humility and have some compassion and have some empathy, that's actually what's hard. And do you think the more you practice it, it becomes more reflexive, but it does require a decision. It does not require a decision to be judgmental or contemptuous. It just doesn't. It's just what we do. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guest today is Kirsten Powers. She's a USA Today columnist and senior political analyst for CNN, where she appears regularly on numerous programs. Her writing has appeared in numerous publications, including the Wall Street Journal, the Dallas Morning News, and other publications. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Saving Grace, Speak Your Truth, Stay Centered, and Learn to Coexist with People Who Drive You Nuts. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Kirsten Powers. She's a USA Today columnist and senior political analyst for CNN, where she appears regularly on numerous programs. Her writing has been published in The Wall Street Journal, The Dallas Morning News, and other publications. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Saving Grace, Speak Your Truth, Stay Centered, and Learn to Coexist with People Who Drive You Nuts. Well, we've been talking around the subject throughout our entire conversation, and you say that you spend a good deal of time in your book, Saving Grace, talking about what grace is. You've said in a couple of different ways, grace is creating space for people to not be you. And then you've also said that grace is unmerited favor. I think that people who are listening to this have begun to get an idea of what you mean, but maybe they don't see how radically this goes and the kind of places that this has taken you. So I wonder if we could talk a little bit now about grace how you are understanding it and how you're seeing it change your behavior over time. And what I'm really struck by is at several points you've talked about practicing grace, not having grace, not giving grace, but practicing grace. So maybe that's the best place to start. What do you mean when you talk about practicing grace? Yeah, I mean that you take a step back and you look at another person who has perhaps triggered you, is perhaps doing something harmful, offensive, whatever it is, and you look at them and you say, this is a person who, if you're a believer, you would say it was made in the image of God. If you're not a believer, you'd say it's just is has humanity, regardless of what their behavior is. And there are tools that you can use that will help you be able to do this. And the biggest one for me was boundaries. And because rather than demonizing that person that I just described, I use boundaries with them. And that can look different in all sorts of different contexts. For the context of social media and the news, which I think can be incredibly triggering to people, I one of the first things I did was I got off of social media. And I, because it's designed to make you hate people. It just is. And it's designed to make you behave in a way that you're going to regret. So I now am, can be on social media, but I don't take on the things that are happening. So when I see people do things that in the past would have really sent me down the spiral of, of judging and contempt, I just am like, no, that's just not for me. And I move on because what I used to do, and I think a lot of people will relate to this, is when you judge the other person, if you can almost think about it energetically, you have now reached out and entangled yourself with that person. You have now taken their stuff and you are now marinating in it and you are thinking about it and you're getting mad about it and you're talking to other people about it. Maybe you're tweeting about it. And guess who's suffering? It's you. 
because you don't have to take that on. There are a million things that we can be doing to deal with the issues that we care about that don't involve taking on other people's toxic behavior. And I say, figure out what you're a no to and just say no and end it there. Just move on. Don't bother with what a horrible person that is or any other things. And then I say, find your yes. What is it? Go donate to uh, an organization, volunteer at an organization. You actually could post something on social media that's informative, that's not meant to demonize somebody. You could elevate voices that are doing that. If you're me, you could write a column or, or figure out how to integrate it into your commentary. So we have a lot of agency and I think it would be better spent doing those kinds of things versus getting caught up in other people's dysfunctional and harmful behavior. It's very important to understand, though, I am not saying that people are not accountable for their behavior. I'm not saying just ignore it when people do bad things. That is not what I'm saying. Sometimes you do have to call somebody out. That does happen. There are occasions for that. But every time somebody does something that bothers you, no, that's not possible. But even if you call them out, you still can do it with boundaries. It's not, you don't have to demonize them. You can name their behavior. You can name what's problematic about it. And don't go down the road of having contempt and judgment for them. So there is a way to do it where you hold people accountable with humanity. And and you're not just protecting their humanity, you're protecting your humanity too, right? Because you're hurt. It's, It's the saying of, they say about unforgiveness, but it's the same thing about contempt or lack of grace. It's drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. So I think that this is one of the things that you can do. Another thing that I have a whole chapter on embracing healthy conflict. There actually is a way to have conflict with people that could have a positive outcome. It doesn't mean the person's going to change their mind, though it might, but both people will walk away feeling heard and seen and maybe you will plant a seed or maybe you'll learn something. Oh my gosh, maybe you'll learn that maybe you weren't 100% right. That's actually possible developing intellectual humility. These are all parts of the practice of grace, dealing with your issues. So there's all these things that you have to do in order to to be in the space, to have the capacity to see people this way. There are a few people that are just born this way. I have never met them, but they exist, I guess. But for the most part, all of us are going to have to figure out how to integrate this. And, And I think particularly people who are in in activism and, and these kinds of things that are, it's so draining. You're taking on so much and you have to learn how to have boundaries of not taking on all of the world's pain, which is what I was doing and recognize what's yours and what belongs to other people. And so when you're carrying all that around, it's only normal to lash out at people. Of course, you're going to do that, right? And that's why boundaries keep you from building up resentment. And so Usually when somebody really loses it and starts yelling at somebody, it's because they haven't used boundaries. They've let somebody continue to do something over and over and over. And then they move from resentment to contempt, judgment, rage, all those things that you could have just shut down back here and focus on doing things that are going to be helpful and not also be miserable all the time, which I was. Let me take just a moment and reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen, and I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Kirsten Powers. She's a USA Today columnist and senior political analyst for CNN. We're talking about her recent book, Saving Grace, Speak Your Truth, Stay Centered, and Learn to Coexist with People Who Drive You Nuts. 
Now, as you're talking about these boundaries, I think that maybe some listeners will get the sense that this is some kind of lofty, sit-on-the-mountain spiritual practice. What really struck me in your book, Saving Grace, was how every day this could be. And the example that comes to my mind is you had a particular conversation partner in one of your segments on television who always would want to then engage you after the segment was over, talk about it in the elevator, what have you. And so you just began a simple practice of just staying in your seat a little longer until this person had gotten on the elevator because your attempts to say, I'm only going to talk about this when I'm on the clock had not been understood. That boundary had not been respected. So I'd love to hear a little bit about how we just make these parts of our everyday practices. What are, how can we find those simple things that can help to restore us to centeredness, to sanity? Yeah. One of my friends said to me the other day, he was watching something on TV and Sean Spicer came on and he's a very liberal person. And he said, he started to get really angry. And then he thought about my book and he said, oh, I don't have to watch this. And he just turned it off. Yeah. And it's, but we don't think of that. We just take the bait and we just go down that path. And so there's all sorts of circumstances where you can do that. I think for a lot of people, their biggest problems are their family, right? So I think that you do have to put yourself, people are going to be going home for Thanksgiving, for example. How do you get ready to try and, and practice grace with your family? I say, get off of social media so that you're not all jacked up on outrage and hatred. <laughs> Unless you're just following like pictures of kitties and puppies, that's fine, right? But just be aware of what you're taking into your body because whatever goes in is going to come out somehow. And it's probably going to come out on one of your family members when they say something that uh, drives you nuts. So I would say that's one thing. Get yourself grounded. I highly recommend a meditation practice for people. Make sure you're taking care of yourself, that you're getting enough sleep, that you're doing all these sort of practical things that you would do for, for really, if you're going to run a marathon, there's, right, there's all these things that you're going to do in preparation for that. It's no different. Then with your family, boundaries can look like a lot of different things. You actually could talk to your family ahead of time and say, hey, can we not try to solve the world's problems at Thanksgiving dinner? Can we just take that off the table for now? We can talk about these things in another time. So for some people, they may never want to talk about it because it's become, it's become so toxic for them and they just realize that this is not going to ever result in anything. That's when I say, take all that energy that you have for yelling at your cousin and go donate some money or volunteer your time, right? There is something you can do about that issue. So I think that then you have to think about when you're physically there, you have to enforce the boundaries. That means if somebody starts doing it, you have to say, you know, I said, I'm not going to talk about this. And you, that's it. That's all you have to say. You don't have to argue with them about it. If somebody keeps pushing you, then you can get up and can leave the table. You just, you have to enforce your boundaries. Or you could say, you know what, I want to talk about this stuff, but can we set some boundaries about how we talk about it? Can we, you know, just agree we're not going to speak to each other with contempt? Can we approach each other with curiosity? Can we try to understand each other? There'll be no yelling, right? So if people can agree on those kinds of boundaries, that's another way. And, and then for some people, the boundary may be, I'm not going home for Thanksgiving. That's okay too. 
And you mentioned at a couple of points this practice of holding the door open, and you get that from a couple of different thinkers. I believe it may be Jen Hatmaker and also Sarah Silverman as examples of people who hold the door open. And I want to make sure that listeners understand what you mean by that. So when you're talking about creating this space where you're going to have a a fair disagreement where you're, or you're going to have boundaries where you're just not going to have any disagreement at all, there are also points where unwanted disagreement thrusts itself upon you. And I'm recalling something you said earlier in the conversation conversation. Your reflex now is to say, I get it. And I really hear the I get it reflex as part of this idea of holding the door open. But just to make sure that my listeners understand it, could you talk a little bit about how you understand that concept of hospitality, of holding the door open for someone else? Well, I think that I used to think of boundaries, and I think a lot of people think of boundaries as a way to keep people out. And so it's like building a wall around and nobody can get in. But actually, boundaries are it's basically showing people where the door is. And if you want to come through this door, this these are just some boundaries around how I'm going to interact with you. And so, because some parents in particular, I think might be like, my child's telling me what I can, can't talk to them about. Like, this is offensive. And, and you can say to them, like, look, I'm doing this because I love you and I want to be in relationship with you and I want to be close to you. And so I'm telling you how to be in relationship with me. This is me leaning into our relationship. This isn't me pulling away from our relationship. And so I think that there's just a lot of misunderstanding about what about what that means. And so I think, and sometimes also people can sometimes go to overly rigid boundaries in the beginning and they can use it as a way to almost punish people. And that's not what it's for. It's just, it's to kind of create a container where everybody understands what is going to be tolerated and what isn't going to be tolerated. You know, one of the things that I heard somebody talk about with also that can be a useful tool for people when they go home is It is this idea that I talk about that grace is seeing people as more than the thing that you don't like about them. It's more than the thing that they're saying. It's more than the harmful behavior they're expressing or endorsing, right? They So your mom is more than her political beliefs or who she voted for. She is the person who nursed you when you were sick. She's the person who went to all of your soccer games. She's the person who made your Halloween costumes. She's all these other things, right? And so to try to see people in their total self and also when you're talking to her to remind her that you see her that way, to say, mom, the reason this is upsetting to me when I hear you say these things is that you raised me to love other people. You raised me. I watched you serve other people. I watched you love our neighbors. I I saw you do all this. And so now I hear you saying these things and it's confusing to me and it's maybe it's even scary to you, right? But so that people can recognize that you, you are seeing all of them and that you're not just seeing them as just this one thing that makes you so angry about them. When we look at the texts of the Christian faith, when we look at the Old Testament, we see Moses saying, you know, I've put before you death and life, choose life. In the New Testament, we see Christ saying, I've come to bring you life in abundance. And so as a way of of bringing our conversation to a conclusion, as you've undergone these practices of grace, how have you found life flourishing more in your own experience? How have you found that abundance to be manifesting for both you and for others around you? I mean, I'm, what's the biggest number in the world? I'm like 10 gajillion times more happy, (laughs) right? I don't even know how to quantify it. It's just night and day. And all my friends would tell you that. And yet 
I still care about things as much as I did before. One of the things that really concerns me is I hear a lot of people saying, you know what, I just stopped watching the news. I just stopped talking to people about politics. I'm just, I can't handle it. It's too stressful. It's like, no, 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 no. We, we can't disengage. That's not the solution to this. So I do believe that we should never lose our capacity to be outraged about people being harmed, about harmful things happening, right? And we, we have to stay informed. And I'm hoping this book will help people stay informed and stay engaged and stay engaged in relationships. And that's what I think these tools do. And that I think I just don't take things personally the way I used to. You know, I have a better understanding now having gone through it myself about how people are in pain, what often looks like aggression or hatred is fear and it's pain. And it's, and, and that people, and I was doing this and I'm sure I still do it, project their, all of that fear and pain and anger onto you. And so it's not really about you. It's about them. And so why take all of that on? That's not for me to take on. And so I guess it does give me compassion for people. That's not to say I don't get angry. I do get angry. And I say in the book, anger is a good thing because it tells you something's wrong. It's just a question of what you do with that anger. And so a grace is not enabling bad behavior. It's not saying that things are okay that aren't okay. It's none of those things. And, I, and it's funny because now that this book is out, I'm just getting all this from conservatives who get mad at things I say. Oh, you're not showing grace. You're not showing grace. Every time I say something they disagree with. And it's, no, I can say that I think this is what happened. And I can say that I think that this is what the Republican Party is doing. That does not lack grace. If I start demonizing people and saying they're rotten to the core, that, that lacks grace. But that would be like saying Jesus lacked grace. Jesus never said anything hard. He never said anything people didn't want to hear. I don't think so. Right? So I think that it's this, unfortunately... And I think I should have actually, I should have led with this because this is so important, which is grace can be triggering to a lot of people because it's been weaponized. And so it's been something that's been used against people who are being harmed and abused in the Christian world who are told you just need to have more grace for people. But we're all sinners. Just have grace for people. You know, this spiritual bypassing, right? Taking these spiritual ideas so that nobody has to actually deal with their own issues or systemic issues in society. So I think for some people who have said to me, well, what do I do with that? It's a triggering word. I say reclaim the word because that's never what it meant. That was never true. And so just they were wrong. And that's unfortunately part of our reality that people weaponize religion and spirituality, but we can reclaim this word and use it the way that I think it was meant to be used. Well, Kirsten Powers, my longtime listeners know that I mention occasionally that I come from a background of trauma that led to a life of rage, and I have been working hard to try and practice the kind of things that you talk about so well in your book, Saving Grace. I did not know how much I needed this book until I read it and finished it. It is a book that I'm going to return to, particularly that chapter on Through a Glass Darkly, but all of it is worth my listeners spending a lot of time with. I am so grateful that you took the time to write this book. I am also so grateful that you took the time to talk about it with me and my listeners. Thank you. Thank you so much. And remember to have grace for yourself. Amen. 
We've been speaking today with Kirsten Powers. She's a USA Today columnist and a senior political analyst for CNN, where she appears regularly on numerous programs. Her writing has been published in the Wall Street Journal, the Dallas Morning News, and numerous other publications. Today, we've been talking about her recent book, Saving Grace, Speak Your Truth, Stay Centered, and Learn to Coexist with People Who Drive You Nuts. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.